Welcome to the Neuro Network. Nick, neuroscientist, physiologist in Seattle. Welcome back, Zach. Thank you. What is this, episode four for us? Episode four for us, episode eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. We're getting there. Part two of the truth about weight loss. Kind of. Kind of. We're talking about exercise physiology today, which is very much ingrained in weight loss. Very much so. Did you ever take exercise physiology? No. No, that's right. You were. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I did do a, uh, what is a National Academy of Sports Medicine to become a personal trainer. Oh, the NASM? Yeah. The NASM did that and had a certificate, but never used it because I realized that personal trainers don't make a ton. Was that the one that the dog passed or was that the CSCS test? The dog passed? Yeah. One of the dogs passed. Like they, they had a uh, online personal trainer certification and mm-hmm. a dog passed it like an actual yeah canine yeah a four-legged friend yeah it was like some spoof saying that it wasn't real you was know that anyone poodle? could be able to pass it but yeah there was a, a dog that passed one of the personal training certification tests that's kind of tight i feel like it'd have to be a poodle they're super smart oh yeah poodles are smart that's true but uh no no exercise physiology just had that certificate uh i did um well my phd is in physiology so i've done a extensive amount of physiology i guess you could say Perhaps. Perhaps. I, you know, I actually, my background is I'm classically trained as a physiologist. Before a neuroscientist? Yeah. I'm my, all of my training is in physiology. And then I ended up studying the brain as a means of controlling a physiological system being breathing. So we sort of implemented physiological studies into the brain as an organ. Wow. So most of my background is in physiology itself. I didn't know that actually. Yeah. So now you do. So I was actually physiologist first, neuroscientist second. Wow. I just remember being shocked when I found out that you were a doctor. Dr. Nick. Dr. Nick. Dr. Dr. Nick. Dr. Dr. Nick. I got a second PhD. Doubled up. Clinical and translational science. That's insane to me. How you implement it into the, implement the basic scientific findings into the clinic. Had to do some clinical rounds, had to have a, um, clinician on my dissertation committee and then had to add an extra aim into my dissertation uh that was a clinical aim so there you go studying hypercapnia in goats anyways exercise physiology all right let's talk about it let's talk about it. let's dive in so first of all let's talk about what exercise physiology is then we'll dive into some of the energy systems that we use during exercise, some of the cardiovascular responses to exercise, respiratory responses, muscular responses, how your hormones change during exercise, and some training principles and adaptations. So we'll just kind of give an overview of the basis of exercise physiology, which makes up all the exercise that you do in the gym to get those sweet, sweet gains. Sweet gains. So exercise physiology, I guess by definition, it's... um. It's a, it's a scientific study of the acute or the immediate responses and or the chronic adaptations that happen to physical activity. So it just looks at the different body systems, cardiovascular, respiratory, muscular, musculoskeletal, nervous systems, and how they respond to different types and intensities of exercise immediately and over time. So that's basically what exercise physiology is. And it, uh, it also looks at basically like physical health or physical activity, how, how it affects disease processes, mm-hmm. you know, how it affects um, different pathological processes from developing and how it can be used as a treatment for certain things, like obviously diabetes um, 
being a very prevalent one, hypertension, obesity, all that kind of stuff. Can you reverse diabetes? Can you reverse? Type 2. Type 2 you can reverse? Yeah, type 1 you can't. Type 1 is just an insulin. Type 1 diabetes is an insulin deficiency. Mm. So they don't. I knew that. Yeah, they don't produce insulin type 2. And that's typically when you uh, develop type 1 diabetes when you're young, right? Yeah. That's juvenile diabetes, I guess you could say. Okay. Yeah, right. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Side note, I was just curious. Now you know. Energy systems. So the human body uses three different energy systems. And of course, when you exercise, this is one of the main stressors that increases the utilization of energy. So the three different energy systems that you have are your ATP phosphocreatine system, your anaerobic glycolysis systems, and then your aerobic systems. So for exercise that lasts for very short durations, like 10, 15 seconds, think like plyometrics exploding off the line, Mm -hmm. stuff like this. This uses your ATP phosphocreatine system. So basically the currency of energy that's used by your body is ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And so it's used by all different organs, especially your muscles. It is what is used by your muscles in order to elicit a contraction or it actually it allows you to relax your muscle which then allows you to then once again contract it so like when you die for example mm-hmm. you don't have any more atp and so that's why you go into rigor mortis but we can talk about that during uh when we talk about the muscles so essentially atp is the currency that is necessary it's the gas that's necessary in order to uh actually use your musculoskeletal system and use your body in general. Um, and so this is what's used for things that are very short in duration, like 10, like I said, 10, 15 seconds. Um, it's just the, whenever you're doing these sort of explosive type of movements, uh, there's a pool of that ATP and, and, and also creatine that's stored within the muscles and it just uses that up right away. And then once that's used up, then you move on to your anaerobic glycolysis. Fun fact though, since we talked about ATP, phosphocreatine, creatine, this is where this comes in. People that supplement creatine. So creatine actually can donate a phosphate molecule to turn ADP, adenosine diphosphate, into ATP, adenosine triphosphate. So basically, when you use ATP in order to elicit a muscular contraction, for example, that ATP is broken down to ADP, adenosine diphosphate, And then creatine can then donate a phosphate molecule to that ADP, where it can then re-become ATP to replenish some of that gas that's needed for the muscular contraction. So that's why when you supplement with creatine, normally you have creatine in your muscles. There's some of it that's stored just for anyone that eats meat or anything like that. That's where you get a lot of your creatine from. But you can increase that pool of creatine that's available by supplementing with it. So when people are taking creatine, that's what it does. And so it just allows you to recreate energy for that quick acting energy system by the use of creatine. And there's a ton of studies on creatine, right? Oh yeah. I mean, it works. It for sure works. What's that? Do you take creatine? No, I used to take creatine. I did too. I got kind of bloated for some reason. I don't know why. I think there's something about it retaining water perhaps. Mm. Which I guess would sort of make sense. It pulls water into the end of the muscle. Okay. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know a whole lot about that. 
I felt good when I was taking creatine, like when I first moved over here, probably two months in to lifting after I moved over here. I started taking creatine because I was coming back from the injury and uh, everything went up way more efficiently. I felt better too in the gym, but yeah, I got bloated as well. (laughs) And it was super annoying and eventually I just stopped taking it. Yeah, it's a common finding or it's a common thing that happens with people that take it. So I don't really know why. Regardless, it provides a means to replenish some of the ATP that's used in your highly explosive type of movements that are very short. So it's very good for like weightlifting and things like that. When it comes to like endurance exercise, it may not be as efficacious, although there's some evidence to suggest that it might increase recovery time for muscles. But, um, you know, the basic theory of it is more geared towards those quick acting type of explosive movements. Anaerobic glycolysis then this is your next energy system that's utilized. And so this is for activity, like exercise activity from like 30 seconds to like two to three minutes. And this is where you break down glucose in order to create ATP. And so anyone that's heard about glycolysis before will know this pathway. Anyone that's taken biochemistry has probably spent nights with tears in their eyes, trying to remember the glycolysis pathway. And I'm going to be honest, I don't remember every enzyme in it either. It just, you memorize it for a test and then it's gone. Gone. But anaerobic glycolysis gives you an ATP that's necessary for those exercises that are like 30 seconds to like two to three minutes. So like a 200 to a 400 meter dash, perhaps something like that. Um, And it's good because it can do it without the use of oxygen. So it can break down glucose into ATP without having to use oxygen. The bad part is that a byproduct of that is lactic acid. This is where your lactic acid comes from. I love it. And so lactic acid is a byproduct of anaerobic glycolysis that can build up in the muscle. The problem with lactic acid is that it is an acid, so it's able to donate a hydrogen ion. And so it splits into lactate and a free hydrogen ion. The lactate can then be fed back in to actually be broken down into more energy, which is good. The bad thing is that it kicks off a hydrogen ion. And anytime that you have an increase in the amount of hydrogen, you reduce the pH and make it more acidic. And this is why your muscles burn. It creates an acid. Uh, How so do you flush lactic acid quickly? Um, I mean, there's some things that say that you can like massage the muscle to sort of move it around. The thing is, though, is that lactic acid, it doesn't stay around very long at all. Like couple seconds after you're done, after you're done exercising, it's gone. It's already broken down. The lactate's been used to recreate ATP. The hydrogen is being buffered very fast because you have a lot of bicarbonate that's floating around in your blood ready to buffer the acid. And so when you hear some people say that, you know, a couple minutes or hours after exercise, they say that, you know, my legs hurt because there's a lot of lactic acid that was built up. It's like that lactic acid has been gone since before you left the gym. It's gone very, very, very fast. The pain that you're feeling is like the delayed onset muscle soreness stuff with inflammation and actual damage to the tissue. But lactic acid don't like it's, it's gone very fast. Totally gone. It's totally gone. It doesn't last around very long at all. Fitness you, myth. You can, yeah, you can, you can measure it. Like uh, you can get a lactate meter. Mm-hmm. So basically like when the lactic acid builds up, then it, like I said, it splits to lactate and hydrogen ion, and you can measure that lactate in the blood. Um, and that's where you can find things like your lactic acid threshold or your anaerobic threshold. And so basically you can have someone 
gradually increase the intensity of their exercise and measure the lactate in the blood over time. And originally it starts to increase just sort of linearly as exercise intensity goes up, lactate starts to build up just a little bit. And then when you get to the point where it gets to about four millimolar of lactate in the blood, it shoots up and then goes up exponentially. And so that's where you go from, let's say, you know, an average person, their heart rate's like 120, 125, like they're, that's near where their lactic acid threshold is going to be. Trained athletes is going to be more in the 140s, the 160s, something like that. Um, And all of a sudden you go from, I can talk, I can handle this exercise. I'm on the treadmill. I can read, I can watch TV. When you hit that lactic acid threshold, that's where you shift from aerobic metabolism to your anaerobic metabolism, because now you need that uh, glycolysis to occur. And that's where suddenly exercise becomes not fun. Painful. Painful. It becomes painful. You get that tunnel vision. You start to go a little bit uh, lightheaded for some people. Sort of puts you in that focus where you have to just like put everything down. You're like, I need to survive this Mm -hmm. at the moment. Congratulations. You've hit your lactic acid threshold. Suddenly you're building up a ton of lactic acid. Um, And then the third system is your aerobic metabolism, which provides the energy for like most of your life. Think about things like, uh, for exercise, this would be things like endurance running, running marathons or anything really over two to three minutes. So I guess a marathon would be sort of a, a long leap over that, but even, yeah, even things like a mile run or anything that's going on for more than two to three minutes ish. Now you're into the realm of aerobic metabolism, which is where you can break down uh, glucose and you can break down fat and even types of protein as well. But either way, you're breaking them all down into ATP again. And this process uses oxygen. And But the, the problem with this is that it takes a long time. It can provide huge amounts of ATP, like endless amounts of ATP relatively. Obviously, you can do things like Ironman, and you can do these ultra marathons and stuff like that. So it'll just keep going, keep going. But the problem is, is it's very slow, and so it can't produce ATP fast enough for these very short, bursty type of exercises. Um, and so that's your aerobic system. The nice thing with the aerobic metabolism is it doesn't produce lactic acid, so you don't get that muscular burn. So you can sort of stay at that 110, 120 heart rate range-ish if that's below your lactic threshold, and you can just sit there all day. And then, you know, your biggest hurdle at that point is then your brain telling you that you're bored. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your aerobic system. And the thing is, is that all three energy systems are sort of used simultaneously. It's not like you're using one versus the other. It's not like you're going only ATP, phosphocreatine, bam. Okay. Now we've gone longer than 30 seconds. Now we're using anaerobic glycolysis. Bam. When that's done, now we're using aerobic. It's always like you're using all three of them at the same time. They're all working together to make your ATP. It's just which one is sort of favored at the moment, but they all sort of have this sort of bell-shaped curve. And it's just, you're just shifting. So if you think of like three bell-shaped curves that are somewhat overlapping, Mm -hmm. uh, that's how they would be. And then as you increase the time and intensity of your, or I guess mainly the time of your exercise, which is gonna be somewhat inversely related to intensity, because the longer you exercise, the less intensity that you can hold. Um, you just sort of go along that spectrum of those overlapping curves. 
So those are the energy systems that you use. Wow. Nice little breakdown of them. That's a breakdown of them. Let's talk about the heart now. As we just segment this up into exercise physiology. Let's do it. Terms. It's a lesson. Do you like your heart? I do. You have a heart? I do. Philosophically? Uh, yeah, and physically. And physically. Mm -hmm. The perfect match. Perfect combo. If I, had, if I asked you, what does your heart do? What would you say? Pump blood. Perfect. I got stumped one time oh, on this very question. Let's, we had a, in graduate school, the person that um, was doing, I guess you could say office hours for mm. medical physiology when we took that. Like uh, a TA? No, it was a professor. Oh, okay. It was a professor emeritus. He was Williams Tequil. Wow. He was like, I think he was like 90 when he taught our course. Anyways, I went in to ask him because he was teaching us electrophysiology and there was a lot of math and calculus that I didn't have a background in. So I had to go get help. And we both know we're not good at math. What's that? I said, we both know we're not good at math. Yeah, no, wasn't my forte. No. Anyways, continue. Anyways, went in and he was trying to, I don't know what point he was trying to make. Like I said, he was like 90 years old. So he talked a little bit cryptic as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And he said, what moves blood in the body? And of course, as a person that was taking medical physiology in graduate school, you go, you run through all of the different laws. You're like, Oh, it's clearly Purcell's law, which determines flow through a vessel, you know, Delta P pi R squared over eight NL, you know, um, and then or pi R to the fourth power, excuse me. Is that your final answer? That's my final answer. All right. And um, and then you talk about well, and, and then you talk about well, flow of blood is just equal to the pressure gradient divided by the resistance, right? So that's you know the determinants of flow, and you go into all these different mechanisms of of how the blood vessels constrict and contract and and expand, and then you said stop. What moves blood? And I was like, I I don't know what answer it is that you're looking for just tell me he said the heart you idiot oh reasonable answer reasonable answer yeah exactly okay well that's fair i guess the heart pumps blood so when we talk about the heart in exercise exercise physiology your heart pumps blood and blood is a good thing during exercise yes it is it carries oxygen carries co2 so you can bring in new oxygen get rid of co2 carries away some of that lactate and the lactic acid that's building up, carries the bicarbonate that's necessary in order to buffer that acid that's building up in your muscles as they're burning, getting rid of that sweet burn that comes with exercise. But the heart itself is kind of an interesting organ. It's a muscle, right? Yeah. The heart has a lot of muscle. And there's different determinants that change how the heart pumps blood. And of course, when you go to exercise, you need to increase the amount of blood that your heart is pumping. And so there's a few different principles that are good to know of the heart. And so there's something that's called stroke volume. This is the amount of blood that's pumped out with every constriction of the heart. So when the heart constricts, it's called systole. When the heart relaxes, it's called diastole. So it goes systole, diastole, lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. When you listen to it, you know, with the stethoscope. Yeah. 
Um, and then your stroke volume, which is how much blood is pumped out with every beat of the heart times your heart rate, how many times your heart beats in a minute, gives you your cardiac output, how much blood is pumped per minute of blood. So for the average human, it's like four to five liters per minute of blood that's getting ejected out of the left ventricle at any given time. And then the things that affect that are things such as preload, what it's called, which is a property of how much blood is dumped into the heart before it contracts. And so the heart has a interesting um, principle, the, the Frank Sterling law. So basically that the, the greater that the heart is filled up with blood, the stronger that it can, that it contracts. So if you fill the, if you fill the left ventricle up with 200 mLs of blood, it will constrict and it will pump harder than if it fills it up with 100 mLs of blood. And that just has to do with basically as you, the heart, the muscular fibers, as they're stretched, they're not in optimal alignment at rest in order to constrict. And as they expand, they increase the alignment or the, the, the alignment of the muscle fibers such that they can constrict harder. Basically you can generate greater force. So basically like if you put your fingers together and you think about, um, as the heart is filling up, you're extending your hands away from each other and the overlap of your fingers, the actual digits themselves becomes greater as you're expanding to a point and then you hit a then you hit a point where it just becomes overfilled and then you don't have any overlap anymore but basically uh you hit an optimal point it's called the length tension relation or the force tension force length tension relationship that you get an optimal overlap of all the muscular fibers and create the greatest uh constriction and so that's basically determined by preload how much blood is going into your heart before it can before it contracts then you have your afterload which is what the heart has the pressure that the heart has to overcome in order to actually pump the blood out so if the mean arterial blood pressure in the aorta is like 100 millimeters of mercury in order to get the blood to actually leave the heart you have to overcome that pressure and so the pressure or the, the, the amount of force that has to be overcome in order for the blood to actually leave the heart, that's your afterload. And so it's a balance of all of these different factors that determines how much blood is being pumped at any given time. And so then if we talk about exercise, your heart rate increase during exercise. Yeah. All the time. Yeah, exactly. So when you're, when you're, when you're exercising, you need to move more blood because your muscles need that blood in order to bring in more oxygen, like I said, to get rid of the CO2, all that kind of stuff. And so when you exercise, your heart rate increases, your stroke volume increases, cardiac output increases, blood pressure increases, and you get a redistribution of blood flow to the different organs. So like um, when you go to exercise, your blood or your muscles need the blood. Your stomach, for example, doesn't Mm -hmm. need the blood. So you get a redistribution of the blood. And so a lot of the blood that's normally going to your gut will then be shunted away from the gut and go to the muscles because they're the ones that need it. And so that's why like energy gels 
and things like that that are used and marketed towards exercise are great for exercise because your stomach, the capacity to digest food during exercise goes way down, way down. And so you have to give it things that are very easy to digest because the capacity to digest food has gone way down since the gut doesn't have the blood anymore. The blood's over doing its thing in the muscles because they're, you know, they're more attractive at that point to the blood. Yeah. So anyways, your heart rate increases. Boom, 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 boom. Stroke volume increases the amount of blood that leaves the heart for every given beat. Cardiac output increases because if stroke volume increases and heart rate increases, then by the nature of the formula, cardiac output increases. And since you're pumping more blood into the vasculature at any given time, the blood pressure is going to increase because more blood, same volume, you're going to get increase in blood pressure. You also get some constriction of some of the blood vessels because you have some sympathetic fight or flight response going on during exercise. And so one of the things that that does is it constricts your blood vessels. Um, and so if you get constriction of the blood vessels and you have greater amount of blood in the blood vessels at any given time, your blood pressure is going to go up. So should we talk about blood pressure? Let's do it. Blood pressure. Dive straight in. Blood pressure increases during exercise. Like I said, your heart rate increases. Stroke volume increases, you get uh, vasoconstriction. So when I talked about that fight or flight response causing the blood vessels to be smaller, this is called vasoconstriction. And so this increases when you have an increased amount of sympathetic nervous, nervous system activity. So sympathetic nervous activity is just any time that you're in a more heightened arousal type of state or fight or flight type of state. And so that narrows your blood vessels and increases your blood pressure, uh, which is a good thing if you want to move blood faster because uh, you need more pressure to create that pressure gradient. You also have some hormonal factors that are released, which are kind of part of the sympathetic response, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Um, this is adrenaline and noradrenaline. It's the same thing. Yeah. Just a different word for them, uh, which can cause increase of your blood pressure. You also get somewhat dehydrated during exercise. Although I've seen you drink a lot of water. Yeah, I drink a ton of water. Even in the gym, you drink a lot of water. Yeah, kill this whole bottle. I'm always curious, though, sometimes, the drinks that people bring to the gym. Oh, yeah, people will bring, like, kombucha yeah, to the That's gym. exactly what I had in mind. People yeah. will bring kombucha to the gym. I just, I think that that's... I don't know what they're doing with it. Maybe there's a reason behind it, but I just imagine bubble guts just going... Crazy. Have you ever seen those... Um, Instagram videos or those TikTok videos of the people that are taking shots in between deadlifts. Taking shots? Shots of like, like whiskey. Why? I, you got me. Because America. I guess so. I couldn't imagine that. There's always like a big American flag in the back. Of course. Taking shots. All the branches of the military flags <laughs> on the walls are all brick spray painted black. Yeah. And there's like some motivational quote from a Navy SEAL. You got it. Yep. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see the purpose of that. I don't see how it would work, but maybe it inhibits some of the pain responses, which would probably increase the risk of injury, but it seems dangerous all around. Needless but, to I mean, say. People drink kombucha. Yeah. I, seen, I don't know what they were drinking, but I saw somebody one time at the gym with a, like a McDonald's cup. Really? 
could have been Just anything. Diet Coke or something? Probably a Diet Coke. Could have been an unsweetened iced tea mm-hmm. for a little bit of energy. Who knows? But Some people drink those amino acids, branched-chain amino acids. Oh, yeah. Isoleucine, leucine, valine, glutamine, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I usually just drink water. Yeah, I drink water. Or Gatorade. Not, not because Gatorade. I want the sugar, just because I like the taste of it, and it helps me drink more. But anyways, you get uh, dehydrated during exercise, which increases your blood viscosity. How thick your blood is. And if your blood viscosity goes up, then your heart rate, or your, excuse me, your, your blood pressure goes up. So that's that. So speaking of blood flow during exercise, like I said, blood flow goes to the different uh, organs or or not organs. It goes to the muscles that are uh, increasing the amount of demand for oxygen and nutrients and all that kind of stuff. So they send out their little signals that say, hey, we're working. We need more blood. Causes dilation of the blood vessels that are going to... Uh, the capillaries of the muscles and the blood flow increases. Um, so that's sort of how it works. And so basically, um, for a lot of different things of blood flow, like the, the, the principles of blood flow are somewhat kind of simple and the amount of blood that goes to any organ at any given time is primarily dictated by the diameter of the blood vessels that are going to the capillaries. And so basically you have these capillary beds, which are sort of like the um, area in the different organs that actually allow for the exchange of nutrients within and outside of the, like into the blood and outside of the blood. And so the capillary walls are very thin and they allow for exchange of oxygen and CO2 and all of these different kinds of things. Um, and so before the capillary bed occurs, you have these arterioles that, um, your, so your arteries go to the arterioles and then your arterioles can constrict and dilate in order to uh, change the amount of blood that's flowing into the capillaries at any given time. And so that's the primary dictation, that's the primary thing that dictates how much blood is going to be going to that place at any given time. And then at the other end of the capillaries, that then now you have a vein. So artery in, capillary bed, vein out. And so that's where you have that system. So you can think of like one side is red and the other is blue is usually how the the um the diagrams have it yeah um but in general which is kind of interesting is that the you have a mechanism called autoregulation which tries to maintain a constant amount of blood flow through any capillary bed for any given time and so basically whenever you have an increase in um pressure that's coming at the that is seen by the arterioles they will have a myogenic mechanism, which is what it's called, where they constrict. So all of a sudden, like you get this big rush of fluid that's coming in and then they just constrict. And then it keeps the amount of flow in the capillary beds constant at any given time. So that's kind of cool. You also have a metabolic mechanism. So basically like um, nitric oxide and adenosine and stuff can dilate the blood vessels to increase the amount of flow. So basically like if you have a decreased amount of, of blood flow to a muscle or to an organ or something like that, um, because of the fact that it has a lack of blood flow going to it, it's going to start building up these molecules like adenosine, nitric oxide, CO2, and those are going to then feed into the arterial to dilate it, to allow blood then to come whooshing through 
And so it has this uh, sort of auto-regulatory mechanism in order to make sure that it has enough blood for whatever it's doing. So like in the case of exercise, suddenly the muscles are producing an inordinate amount of CO2, lactate, nitric oxide they're giving off. Um, they have lower amounts of oxygen, perhaps that's going to feed into those arterioles to dilate them. And then the, it's going to allow more blood to come flushing in. And so that's how it changes the amount of blood that's flowing to any given area of the body at any given time. The body's crazy. Body's nuts. Physiology is kind of cool. It's kind of cool. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. I Especially, feel like I say that a lot here, but I feel like so if you have like a mechanical type of mindset, mm-hmm. physiology is great. You know, it's very, it's sort of, it's very much sort of like understanding the body as if it's a car. You it's know? like input, output, input, output, conduit pumps, things like that. Yeah. The brain gets a little wacko in the different things of consciousness and central command and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, stuff's interesting. The physiology systems are pretty great in my unbiased opinion. Speaking of, let's talk about breathing during exercise. Why not? Why not? So I study the neural control of breathing. That's my primary research area. And and some of the episodes earlier were about the neural control of breathing. Basics on breathing. You breathe? I do. You like breathing? Uh, yeah, typically. Have you ever done any of that breath work stuff? Uh, yeah, I do a lot of breath work, actually. Do you really? I do. What kind? Like, is there a specific protocol that you follow for breath work? Um, or do you just sort of... Sort of just internal? wing it, but it's like um, sort of like meditation. Do you meditate? I do meditate. Really? I do. In the morning or in the evening or... Any All depends. Like... Oh. It all depends. I struggle to fall asleep a lot of nights, though. Uh-huh. Um, so there's some, like, calming, I guess, kind of um, meditations, like guided meditations that I do. Um, on YouTube or? Usually YouTube, yeah. Um, I think you can find them pretty much anywhere, though. Like, I think Apple Music and Spotify have, like, playlists and channels dedicated specifically to meditation. And then, of course, there's a bunch of apps everywhere. But uh, that I do... A lot of physiological size when I do like intense cardio or is it a physiological sigh or just an augmented breath? Yeah, my two sharp inhales through the nose and a long exhale sigh. So it's a simulation of a sigh, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do that a lot when I start getting like uh, amped up to like sort of you know calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know box breathing, stuff like that. In into hold two out two. Uh, I usually do four. Four in four, hold four out four, hold four, hold four. Yeah, hmm. yeah, cool. Yeah, the uh, the research on mindfulness breathing is pretty naive. Is it? Oh yeah, I mean, like most of the ways that we study breathing is in animals. That's fair. And so, how do you get a mouse to mindfully breathe? Cocaine. Cocaine. Yeah. Cocaine. They'll do anything for <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> give it. Give it a good reward. Yeah. No, actually, um, there's some of that work being done in the lab right now. Um, not by myself, but by someone else that's trying to get mice to breathe on demand, basically. So, What's the reward? Um, it's not necessarily a ward, but a reward, but um, prevention, so aversion type of uh, stimulus. So, like, you can 
you can give a tone and then you can pair it with let's say something that's unpleasant yeah so either something sour or like wasabi in the air or something like that that makes it like they don't want to breathe necessarily Mm. um and so you can pair that enough to the point where then every time that you hit the sound the mouse will hold his breath and so you can elicit conscious control of breathing by doing that and so you can start to study the um mechanisms like higher order consciousness uh areas of like the cortex of the brain that control your central command as they call it for breathing yeah so breathing as you can imagine is pretty important during exercise yeah so for breathing you have your tidal volume is what's called Tidal volume is just basically the amount of air that you're moving in and out at rest during breathing. So when you're breathing, just you're sitting there doing nothing. The amount of air that's moved into there is your tidal volume. That's what it's called. And then you have your inspiratory reserve capacity, which is anything above your tidal volume. Uh, or it's, it includes your tidal volume plus um, your inspiratory reserve volume, which is basically the amount of air that can still be moved into your lungs above your tidal volume. And so if you take the, if you take just a normal breath and you get to the top of a breath, mm-hmm. instead of exhaling, if you inhale fully all the way up, that would be your inspiratory reserve volume. Okay. And so basically if you just take a normal exhale and then you breathe all the way in from there, that's your inspiratory capacity. And then um, you have the same thing for expiration, obviously. And so basically you have amount, the amount of air beyond what you would normally exhale that you can push out. Um, and that is basically your expiratory reserve volume. And then even though you push as much air as you can physically push out of your lungs, you get to the end and you're like... Yeah. You get there, you still have, uh, you still have air in your lungs called your residual volume. And so actually like in asthmatics, for example, they have a very heightened residual volume. And so one of the things that you can, there's different tests that you can use to measure residual volume. And so for people with asthma, they have a heightened residual volume. It's one of the things that's used to diagnose asthma. Wow. You can also do a methylcholine challenge. I think it's called methylcholine. Basically, you put them in a box, make them breathe out of a tube, and then they're breathing normal gas, like normal air. And then you give little spritz of methylcholine, and it'll trigger an asthma attack. And so, in a normal person, it doesn't really affect them whatsoever. But in asthmatics that have a heightened response to methylcholine, they will just... And so, when I got diagnosed with asthma as a kid, when I was really fat is that I put it in a box and then I was breathing out of a tube and then suddenly mm. methylcholine close your throat off. Okay. And okay. then they give you a spritz of albuterol to open it back up. But that makes sense. I remember doing an asthma test when I was fat as well. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what happened. I didn't know what was going on, but yeah, I had to breathe into like a tube and it was raising a thing inside that looked like a, like a spring kind of yeah, spirometer, whatever it was. Yeah. And then, uh, I never had any reaction to anything and I was like breathing just fine. And they're like, no, you're just out of breath because you're fat. 
Tight. Tight. You you don't have asthma. You're just obese. Yeah, pretty much. There is a condition. Obesity hypoventilation syndrome. That's a thing. That's a that's a real thing. Like when you get out of breath quickly. Uh, no, like when your obesity is hindering your ability to expand your rib cage. Oh yeah. So you can't breathe physically because there's too much adipose tissue. That's probably what happened to me. In the way. Yeah. But that's but, interesting. I didn't know that that's how it went. Yeah. So that's that's the asthmatic tests. But anyways, when you exercise, which is good for asthma, although there is some exercise-induced asthma. So this is a, like for asthma, it can be like um, exercise-induced, so it triggers a pathway in your in your airways to then constrict. Is uh, that from uh, like hyperventilation? You know, I don't know what the exercise-induced stimulus is. I think it could be triggered by excessive amounts of adrenaline, but mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know exactly. Mm-hmm. The more, I mean, so that's that's actually pretty common. You see a lot of people that have that. Um, you also have your allergen-induced asthma, mm-hmm. and so that's just triggered by allergies. Yeah, my dad had one of those one time. He like went into a full panic attack and yeah, freaked out. Yeah, so usually people have some mix of the two, but. Anyways, your inhaler can prevent that by either dilating your airways or preventing the inflammation from occurring or anything like that. And is uh, buterol the only thing that's in an inhaler? No. There, well, there's different inhalers. The primary like rescue inhaler or the primary fast-acting inhaler, that's mm-hmm. albuterol. Like that's what most people carry in the little... Most people, that's albuterol. Yep. And if you go into the hospital for an asthma attack, you get that mask that's like pumping this misting air. Um, that's also an albuterol. Okay. So, um, it's a wondrous drug. It just opens the airway up. Uh, Sounds kind of tight. It's it's an it's a amazing drug. It's Would bad. it help you if you uh, didn't have asthma? Oh yeah. There's well, that's always sort of the the joke. In so I was a D one cross country skier, mm-hmm. and I also raced cycling and triathlons. Yeah, and um, it was always the joke that magically, as people got better in these endurance type of sports then they would develop asthma oh, of course of course of and course. so it's puff puff pass before the race yeah you know yeah, suddenly oh everybody's got asthma take a whiff of this inhaler before you go and do an endurance race that requires you know you to be working at your physical capacity for breathing mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah does it increase your lung capacity as well no it just re- well it reduces the resistance to breathing uh-huh. so it makes breathing easier mm-hmm you know, it takes, so it takes less effort from your muscles in order to breathe. Okay. And how long do the effects last for? Depends on the person. Okay. It doesn't last very long, long enough to make it through a race or something like that. I don't know how long a cross country skiing race is. They range from 45 seconds to three hours. Wow. So, so how many hits off of that, uh, buterol would you need to take for a three hour race? I don't know. That'd be an interesting one. I know you did it. I, I didn't. And, I actually didn't. I didn't use a buterol during racing wow seems like a ped in a way oh yeah yeah it is you can't you can't take albuterol theoretically if you do if you don't have asthma what if you're a ufc fighter and you have asthma but you're just air quotes asthma air quotes asthma uh but somebody's just giving you i mean it wears off quick that's the problem because didn't that happen one time in a ufc fight i think so somebody took a puff off of a inhaler inhaler and it was like a big controversy thing yeah Hmm. well it's hard because if a person is having trouble breathing, you can say that they're asthmatic. Yeah. You know, like if they're having trouble breathing and you give them an inhaler and it helps, 
then you know it's a gray area yeah but theoretically by the book at least from when i went through these courses if you have an increased residual volume i think it's like greater than 60 percent of your or no i I don't remember 40 percent 20 percent some percentage anywhere between zero and look it up if you want to see it but yeah um if you have an increased reserve volume and you have a positive methylcholine challenge boom anyways breathing during exercise so your tidal volume increases the amount of air that you're breathing which is interesting that you actually increase your breathing during exercise by increasing the amount that you exhale so you do you 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 increase the amount that you're inhaling like the volume you take a bigger breath in but primarily when you start to exercise you just exhale greater because like i said when you are doing your normal tidal volume breathing just breathing at rest once you end your normal breath there's still a lot of air in your lungs that you can push out yeah and so when you're breathing during exercise you primarily dip into that you primarily exhale more while still inhaling the same if that makes sense and is that like an immediate effect or is that a longer lasting effect uh well it it, it occurs during the exercise period okay during okay yeah and so it's nice because it helps you inhale more because obviously like the amount you inhale has to match the amount that you exhale otherwise you'll just blow up like a balloon um and so if you dip into that expiratory reserve volume and you and you breathe out more then you get some recoil pressure that occurs at the bottom of the breath to then help you to inhale so no, so it has to it can take less effort to breathe in that same amount of air versus if you increased your breathing by just increasing the amount that you're inhaling through your inspiratory reserve volume okay. so it's kind of cool that we've sort of adapted to do that um your breathing rate increases the amount you breathe so let's say a normal human bring breathes like eight to twelve breaths a minute they'll breathe more Mm-hmm. And of course, if you increase your breathing rate and you increase your tidal volume, the amount that you're breathing per breath, your overall ventilation is going to increase. So is it better to have a higher or lower respiratory rate? You know, the respiratory rate should match the metabolic demand. I'll, I'll say that to be safe. Okay. You know, there's some things about mindset and being able to control your breathing during exercise to calm you down or to put you in different states. Yeah. But for the most part, your respiratory rate and the amount of alveolar ventilation that you have at any given time needs to match the intensity of the exercise. Because okay. this is where you're bringing in oxygen and you're getting rid of CO2. Hmm. So, and remember that hydrogen ion that's produced by the lactic acid? Yeah. Lactic acid splits the lactate and hydrogen ion. Hydrogen ion makes your muscles acidic. It also makes your blood more acidic. Uh, That hydrogen ion, the way that it gets excreted in the short term is through your breathing. So it recombines with bicarbonate to make CO2. And then that CO2 can then go to your lungs and get breathed out. And so if your muscles are burning, you're working out very vigorously your muscles start to burn and you say i want to reduce my amount of breathing 
to focus on it, to have more focused breathing to calm me down, you can actually kind of work against yourself because now your muscles are just going to burn more because you've, you've inhibited manually one of the major components that's getting rid of that acid that's making your muscles burn. Okay. So take that for what it's worth, I guess. Noted. Yeah. I'm not saying that you necessarily like there's certain aspects of exercise where controlling your breathing manually can be efficacious Mm -hmm. because most of the time we're breathing more than we need to during exercise. And it's actually interesting that, you know, um, if you track the amount of oxygen in the blood and the amount of CO2 in the blood over time during exercise, it doesn't really change like at all. If anything, you start to hyperventilate during exercise and your CO2 actually goes down and the oxygen in your blood goes up. Mm -hmm. So you hear a lot of times, well, I need more oxygen. And so that's why I'm breathing more during exercise. But you don't. Your breathing is very good at matching its metabolic needs, mm-hmm. your metabolic needs. And so actually there's like this been this huge debate for years on the, the neural control of breathing during exercise. What makes you breathe during exercise? And the question, of course, the answer is I don't know. Uh, the answer is we don't know as a field. But there's different hypotheses of uh when you increase or when you start to exercise, you have an increased ventilatory drive. So there's different ways to measure ventilatory drive. You can take something called VT over TI. So ventilate. So you take your tidal volume, how much air is breathed for a given breath. And you divide that by the inspiratory time or the time it takes for your inspiration to occur. And so you can imagine that if you hold the tidal volume constant and you reduce the amount of time that it takes to fill your lungs up to that volume, so you reduce the inspiratory time, then that number gets bigger. So the ventilatory drive goes up. And so that's, that's how you can sort of quasi quantify that. And so when you're exercising, obviously you're going to be breathing more quicker. Um, and so your ventilatory drive goes up, but there's different hormonal factors, uh, chemoreceptors that can be triggered by the hydrogen that's produced during exercise. Um, and my favorite one is the central command theories, which my PhD advisor would be rolling around kicking and screaming and ready to fight me on this one. But I'm a big fan of anticipatory control of respiration for exercise. So basically like if you actually look at the time course of when you start to breathe more during exercise, it doesn't fit with any of the changes in oxygen, CO2, any of the blood hormonal factors. Like it doesn't match with any of them. And so you actually start to increase your breathing prior to the exercise very slightly. And so that would, um, suggest that you have some sort of anticipation coming from the higher order brain centers to signal down into the respiratory network to breathe more right before you're starting the exercise. So that way you never end up reducing the amount of oxygen and increasing the amount of CO2 in your blood. So anyways, mental thing. Yeah, that's my theory. So I don't know if I had to, if I had a gun to my head and someone had one of the main review papers that had the theories of why you breathe more exercise induced hyperpnea 
So hyperpnea is just increase in breathing. Hyperventilation is breathing above metabolic rate. Hypopnea is less breathing. Hypoventilation is breathing below metabolic rate. You know, so you can be hyperpnic without hyperventilating. And mm -hmm. exercise is a good example of that. You're breathing more, but your metabolic needs are going up. And so you're still breathing the same amount relative to the amount of metabolism at that given time. Yeah. And so you're hyperpnic, but not hyperventilating. Physiology. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of terminology, I guess. A lot of terminology. Yeah. So anyways, it's still debated as to why you actually breathe more during exercise. Obviously, like you need to breathe more. I shouldn't say why it's not debated why you breathe more. We know why you breathe more because you need more oxygen and you got to get rid of CO2. Mm -hmm. Um, but what is the actual neural signal that's originating to tell you to breathe more for your exercise session? Yeah. Something I've honestly never thought about until right now. Yeah. It's like, there's whole fields on it. Wow. It was studied in, in ponies a lot in, um, my PhD advisor did ponies, pony wow. research. I studied in dogs and rats and humans. Did spinal taps on each other. Wow. And there was things where they would uh, inject like remifentanil into the spinal cord in order to paralyze a lot of like the signals that were coming from the muscles to the brain. And then they still breathe more during exercise. They, they actually did transfusion studies where they would take the blood of a dog that was exercising and pump it into a dog that was not exercising and then see if the dog would breathe more in relation to how much the other dog was exercising. Damn. And they took, they did the reverse. They pumped the blood from a dog that was at rest into a dog that was exercising. So that the way, the only thing basically that the dog's brain saw was the blood of the non-exercising dog and still breathe more during exercise. Damn. Like, it was like, no matter what you did, you breathe more during exercise. You breathe more during exercise. Damn. They did these paralyzing studies in ponies where they paralyzed the pony and then, uh, it would regain function of its limbs. So it, you would have like a decorticate preparation. So basically you like, you remove most of the connections from the brain. Um, not necessarily you remove the connections, but you remove a lot of the input that's going into the brain. Um, and then over time the ponies would learn to walk again. They would still breathe more during exercise crazy wow. none of those studies can be done nowadays but it's still crazy let's talk about the muscles because you got to go pretty soon it's already like close to an hour i think yeah we're close close to closing in on an hour muscles during exercise your muscles need to contract during exercise we know that makes sense um and so have you ever looked into the pathway of how muscles contract um, I mean, yes, but explain it for, uh, listeners. Action potential comes down to a motor unit, gets released, mainly releases acetylcholine. It binds to receptors that then causes a cascade that causes the release of calcium. Calcium then binds to a molecule called troponin. And actually there's a few different flavors of troponin. It, it binds to troponin C, causes a conformational shift in the troponin to allow these myosin heads to bind to the troponin and then it pulls has a thing called a power stroke pulls the muscle and allows muscles to contract like a diesel yeah exactly so basically um you have 
myosin heads that bind to the troponin with ADP. And then as the muscles then, or as you form that power stroke, the ADP is released from the muscles. And then in order to get the myosin heads to release from the troponin, you need ATP to bind. So this is where I said that with ATP is necessary in order to relax the muscle. So you get that constriction, then ATP binds, which allows it to release. Hmm. And then that ATP is hydrolyzed. And then it turns to ADP plus a free organic phosphate. And then it can then bind to troponin again. And it can create this cycle where it's always like doing a come hither motion in order to keep those muscles contracting so again when you, when you die rigor mortis sets in sets in because you don't have the atp muscular fibers can never relax from each other so during um exercise you get muscular contractions those require the atp so i mean that's pretty much that's muscles yeah. during exercise so they, they grow, of course, because as you're exercising, you tear. So those muscle fibers are always trying to hold on to each other. And then as you stretch the muscle fibers, you start to get these tears or you start to overload them and they start to um, get little micro tears in the muscles. And then you get inflammation that occurs from that, which is a good thing for muscle growth because then you get all the growth factors that come in afterwards and then it rebuilds from the tears and they tend to build up bigger than they were prior. It's just a cool little feature that happens. So... Actually, if you're taking a bunch of anti-inflammatories right after exercise or you're inhibiting the inflammation that occurs from exercise, you're actually inhibiting some of the growth of the muscle. So Checks out. Yeah. Inflammation isn't always bad. It gets a bad rap. I feel bad for inflammation. Somebody's got to love it. Yeah. I mean, it causes a lot of bad things, but it's not always bad. You know? It's toxic for sure. Mm-hmm. But anyways, in this case... It's always good. Not always good. In this case, it can be good. If you injure the muscle, then you're going to get inflammation that you probably want to inhibit because it hurts. Yeah. Muscles grow then. A process called hypertrophy. Muscle fibers get bigger. There's also hyperplasia, but it doesn't really occur much at all. And that's just making more muscles, more muscle fibers. Hypertrophy, same muscle fiber, bigger. Hyperplasia, more muscle fibers. Now you know. The more you know. The more you know. So, how much time you got left? You got like five minutes left? Yeah, like five, ten minutes. Training principles. Speed run. We can always do a part two as well. Yeah, we're going to have to have a part two on this to, to talk about the training principles. But now you know the basic overview of sort of the mindset of, of physiology throughout um, exercise. exercise. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot. I think that we uh, glance over it. Like I said, I honestly have never thought about the. I know you walk into the gym. You go, I want to get. Welcome to Swole Town. Mm-hmm. Where's the weights? You start cranking out. Sun's out, guns out, skies out, thighs out. Boom. Yeah, but this is all the stuff that goes into it. You're talking about blood flow restriction training. You know, mm-hmm. you can restrict the the amount of blood that goes to the muscles during exercise. That's of course a function of 
what we talked about with how the blood flow is affected during exercise. And those are those like weird straps that people wear on their biceps and shit, right? Yeah. And it can create excessive amounts of nitric oxide and adenosine that's produced because you're essentially making the muscles not have enough blood. And so they keep sending out those factors to increase the amount of blood. And so when you release that, then bam, you get this huge blood flow because suddenly you've built up all these factors to say, I need more blood. I need more blood. I need more blood. And you're, you know, you're actually physically preventing the blood from going there with a strap. So does that just increase the pump or does it actually help with muscle growth? Yeah. Well, it increases the pump, which theoretically can increase the, the, uh, amount of hypertrophy because if you're just, if you're filling it up with blood, pumping it, you're getting more stretch, which is going to stimulate growth. So that's why I always like, like lighter weight, get a full stretch of the muscle belly is always going to build bigger muscles than just doing half reps of huge weight. So like doing a leg press with 36, 45 pound plates and bending your knees doesn't really stimulate a whole lot of growth. Yeah. Stresses your joints. But if you take two plates and you get in the leg press and you have it go all the way down so that your knees are like touching your ears and then go all the way back out. Then that's going to stimulate way more growth you get bigger quads than pumping out 36 plates, which I think we both know that, uh, less plates on the leg press is kind of nice. Less plates, more dates. Boom. For that. There's that guy that has a YouTube on it. Is there? Yeah. More plates, more dates. No. Yeah. I mean, for some exercises, I guess. Never never watched any of the stuff but um yeah i do that a lot when i work out though just use lighter weights and uh it, i mean it depends on what i'm going for but like i lost a lot of weight after the injuries last year yeah got pretty small as you can tell so i've just been doing yeah like pretty light weights like full range of motion and just focusing on that and it's probably getting better results yeah way better results yeah that's why everyone always says that, you know, injury was a blessing in disguise for the training. I feel like as you go into these training protocols mm-hmm. and training blocks, your form and every your, your form and your mindset of the weights that you're using always like you just want to go heavier and your form gets sloppier over time because you're getting more fatigued as the training block progresses and yeah. you want to see that growth right away. So you're like always increasing your weight so i can go heavier than i did last time of course but it's like you're in a if you're in a specified training block like you're supposed to be kind of getting a little bit weaker as you go through it because you're breaking down the muscles yeah and you're obviously going to be fatigued and then it's only after then you can recover from that then the muscles are going to grow back stronger so then your next training block you can use bigger weights but it's like throughout your training block period it's okay to be getting somewhat weaker. You know, you're focusing on your form. You're focusing on the contraction. Yeah. You're focusing on all that kind of stuff. And then once you recover, then you'll get stronger. Yeah. But people, you know, if they're, if they don't have their training set up, like in those specified blocks or something like that, then suddenly you don't have that recovery phase and they're always just trying to get boom, 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 stronger right away. Then they get injured and it finally makes them refocus, put a lighter weight on, focus on the contractions and stretch and having good form. And suddenly they get stronger. Yeah, which that is honestly huge. Like when I very first started lifting weights, like actually taking it seriously, not just going to the gym and fucking around, like actually programming workouts for myself and whatnot. Um, I would just do super light weights at first and just focus on form. 
make sure that was dialed in and then everything got a little bit easier and even now like my elbows still flare up a little bit when i'm doing certain things like when i bench i'll notice my elbows feel like they have a lot of instability mm. so i have to lower the weight and i can't bench anything right now and it's pretty depressing the helicopter bench yeah so i like i really have to focus on i haven't uh, benched my form time. throughout yeah i haven't benched in a long time either no. i do flat dumbbell benches that's what i've been doing too or it feels better dumbbell. on my elbows yeah some sort of dumbbell presses i just find it's easier in the shoulders you get yeah. better constriction of the chest i also don't care if i have a big bench yeah i've when hit I was... 225 so i'm like i don't care I, after that I, I don't care when i was competing in powerlifting, then yeah yeah then then it's the sport yeah but for just building chest mm-hmm. you get way more out of a dumbbell bench press yeah than an actual barbell flies yeah than with the barbell bench yeah. press which is pretty much it and i mean my training has changed so much yeah. over the last year anyways that it's like I, everything that I was going for before I just stopped caring about. Totally changed it. You go through those periods. Do a lot more mobility work too, like stupid little exercises with basically no weight. But it's like, okay, yeah, my hips feel better now. My knees feel better. My shoulders feel better. I, know. I don't feel like they're tight. You always like when you start in the gym, you're like, I, I want to get as big as I can. I want to get, get as strong as I can. I want to throw up these big weights. And you see the people in the back that are always doing these little mobility drills and mm-hmm. they're warming up their rotator cuffs before. And you, usually when you start young, you're like, ah, I don't need that. Yeah. I'm just going to jump on them. Let's, yeah, leave those two plates on there. That'll be a good warm up. Good warm up. And then five years later, shoulders are destroyed. You're, yeah, you're injured. Shoulders are destroyed. You're barely putting up the weights that you were then and you see them just consistently making progress even if it's a little progress they're always making little progress and suddenly there are leaps and bounds ahead of you towards in the hair yep Zach, thanks for um sitting through this exercise physiology lecture of course always happy to be here <laughs> always happy you know we could charge for that per course probably could yeah but you know keep it free that's what that's right information here so anyways i like to share your knowledge right thanks for joining the neuro network www.theneuronetwork.org no www.neuronetwork.org no the neuro network.org. it is the neuro the network. neuro network.org Network. it's not even my website apple spotify although if you're already listening to it then you have found it share it to your friends share it to your friends follow the instagram follow the instagram rate the show give us a review and we'll see you next time We'll see you next time. Have a great week. You as well. Always. Always.